0: Paul says, chapter two, verse 14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, when we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. And Father, we humbly bow now in our hearts before you and And just ask, Lord, that you would quicken us by your Holy Spirit that we might be receptive and able to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church through this part of your inspired word that you've given to us. Every intent that was behind your heart when you first gave it, Lord, may we hear spoken to us what you spoke when you wrote these words initially we pray prepare us give us an ear to hear take away that which would distract within us and among us and we ask your blessing and your spirit's anointing upon the word of god that you'd speak to our hearts personally this morning and we believe those things asking in jesus name and everyone said amen amen you may be seated know it's often been said in life that nothing good comes easy nothing good comes easy and i think there is indeed some spiritual truth to that for example for starters eternal life came at a great cost to god the father as well as to his son jesus christ spiritual maturity for the christian is not automatic Uh, It requires dedication and it requires a level of commitment if we want to experience spiritual maturity. Living godly, and it's going to just increase, in this present evil age, does not come easy. It's going to require some hard decisions. It's going to require a willingness maybe to suffer and be persecuted. And the Christian life, though good, is not easy. It's not for cowards. It's not for those who are weak-willed. The spiritual life involves opposition and resistance and difficulty. And that's what our text this morning, you can see, instructs us about that reality. Remember the backdrop, a special work of God's Spirit had happened among the Thessalonian people as Paul, Silas, and Timothy went there to plant and establish the church. And with that spiritual work came the resulting work of resistance and opposition against what God was doing and that brought suffering and struggle to the believers there in this new church and Paul as their pastor having a parental heart as he talked about in chapter 2, of love and concern for them. Uh, At this point now, concern for their welfare discusses this issue to help them process the difficulties they're dealing with, lest it have a detrimental effect upon their spiritual walk and ruin their spiritual lives. Remember, Paul, apart from his preference, was literally driven out of Thessalonica. He was pushed out of town circumstantially within a matter of a few weeks of ministry there. And has not been able to return to them yet and his heart and concern for their spiritual welfare and their stability in their walk with Christ is what he now is addressing with them in which as he talks about these things we'll see this morning that we get some helpful lessons for ourselves in regards to spiritual resistance and spiritual opposition, which we as Christians will all face in our lives as well. Look with me again back in the 14th verse as Paul begins to discuss this. He says, therefore, you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffer the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. So it seems here that that spiritual resistance, that spiritual opposition that sparked up when Paul first came to Thessalonica, we looked at that in Acts chapter 17 when Paul began planning the church, it seems that spiritual resistance that started then that drove Paul away sort of has just continued now like a forest fire to continue to happen among the people of God there after Paul even moved on. So Paul begins now in our verse here To call to their attention their suffering for their faith in Christ and how it was happening to them. And he wants them to see here, take note, that that suffering for their faith in Christ was not something they were alone in. Paul wants them to realize that. You notice here, he does not want them to think that the difficulty and mistreatment they're enduring from unbelieving people among their local sphere of influence, their own friends and family and associates. And he says, look, I want you to realize that opposition and that mistreatment, that's not something that's unusual. Don't think it's unique to your situation as a Christian, Paul's trying to say to them, it's not abnormal. Rather, it is a common spiritual pattern among Christians as a whole. Do you see what he says there? Look at it in our verse. He says to them, the churches there which are in Judea, the southern part of Israel, they suffer the same things from the Judeans, the people in their local area. And he says, even as you now are suffering the same things from your own countrymen right where you are there in Thessalonica. So even as the Jewish Christians over in Judea, the southern part of Israel were suffering, Even as other churches and Christians in other territories were suffering and they had all had to learn how to stand fast and remain faithful amidst the pressure and resistance and opposition spiritually. In the same way, Paul was now happy to hear of the Thessalonians, verse 14, to be glad and proud how they now as well were standing fast and imitating that same perseverance. As the churches in Judea and in other areas, and imitating that same faithfulness, and in a sense, running their leg of the race with endurance and persevering amidst the present difficulties. And can I say, by way of application for all of us, it is really important and healthy to remember in all of our lives that what we may suffer for our faith in Jesus is not at all unusual, it's not unique. It's not something that is limited to us. In fact, quite honestly, to make it worse, it comes with the commitment. It's par for the course, as we might often say. Others before us in history And other people presently in other areas are experiencing the same sufferings for their faith in Christ. Peter, when he was writing to a group of suffering believers, uh, speaking about their resistance and their trials that they were facing, said this in 1 Peter 5.9. He said, know that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. As Peter addressed suffering people, people who were struggling for their stand for Christ and trying to do what was right and honor Jesus, Peter said, look, I need you to know something, that the same sufferings that you are going through, hard as they are, and not that he was trying to be discompassionate, he says, you need to know the exact same sufferings are happening to your brotherhood around the world. All over the world, people are suffering the same thing. See, it's healthy, in a sense, to understand that reality that we're not the only one enduring suffering. And here's why. Lest we begin to develop wrong ideas about what we're going through, or lest we become overly discouraged, or think that we're being targeted personally, and and overly interpret things in a too much of a personal way that somehow we're being targeted and God's not paying attention or that we're being in an isolated way, treated in a way that nobody else has ever been treated for their relationship with the Lord or making the decisions that they're making. And I think it's also important to realize too from this text that opposition and suffering, many times, like in this verse, it comes from our own countrymen, if you would. The people who are closest to us, our own sphere of influence, those we live among. If you're in school, it's gonna come from your fellow students. It's going to come from your closest friends. If you're in a family, guess what? The Bible says sometimes your enemies are those of your own household. Those who you work with, the people that you interact with from among your own countrymen, that many times is where the most severe mistreatment comes from. The most mockery, the most persecution, people who will challenge you the most or maybe hurt you the most for trying to really live for Jesus and make God honoring decisions and follow the Lord in your life. And like the churches of Judea and Thessalonica, we now must imitate perseverance as well. We now must determine to run the leg of our race well spiritually and be faithful to Jesus in our time, despite what we suffer for it personally despite what our family may have to endure because of such things or what we may have to endure as a church. And Paul wanting to make it clear now that this sinful opposition against God and his people was not something that people get away with and that people don't do that without accountability or consequence. He now speaks in our next verses further of the guilt of these judeans which were a select group of jews in the area of judea in that time historically so speaking further of the specific judeans and what hurtful wrong things they did he says verse 15 these are those who killed both the lord jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us paul says and they do not please god and are contrary to all men forbidding us to speak to the gentiles that they may be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So these specific Jews, many of who were even the religious leaders in that day in Israel, these were those, Paul says here in verse 15, who first of all, who actually killed the Lord Jesus. These were the unbelieving Jews who, when God sent their Messiah to them, rejected Jesus as God's promised Messiah and ultimately demanded the death of our Lord Jesus Christ by asking the Romans to put him to death through crucifixion. These are also the same select group of Jews in that time historically, he says, who had a reputation for killing their own prophets when God would send messengers to his people to try and speak to them or awaken them morally or spiritually about their condition. Many times through history, they would not only reject these prophets, but they'd put these prophets to death. To silence them, they would actually take away their lives. And Paul says this same thing, he says, even now is happening to us. He says as well there in verse 15, they also persecuted us. And interesting, when you study the book of Acts in the New Testament, you begin to recognize rather quickly that the greatest attacks of resistance and opposition to Paul the Apostle's ministry typically arose from and came from the hands of unbelieving Jews in the area of Judea and those there in jerusalem and the religious council there and what were they doing well look what the text tells us this is exactly one of the things they were doing paul says verse 16 here he says this is what they were doing they were forbidding us he says to speak to the gentiles that they may be saved that word forbid paul uses there means to cut off access or opportunity from something It's a word that speaks of creating a roadblock to prevent something from happening. Now, I want you to notice here, these were people, Paul says, that were always doing things to cause roadblocks to keep him from sharing the gospel so that people could get saved, actually saying and doing things, hear this, to stop the salvation of people actually doing things that were hindering the eternal destiny of people and can i just say that's a pretty serious violation would you agree i mean it's one thing to not want to believe upon jesus christ for yourself it's one thing to reject jesus say i don't want to follow jesus i don't want nothing to do with this christianity thing and it's one thing to resist god's work for yourself but to actually consciously and purposely with willful intent do things so that another person can't hear about the same salvation to willfully purposely work to prevent people from entering into a relationship with God to stop people from hearing about forgiveness and to cause roadblocks so people can't get to heaven that's a pretty serious infraction spiritually And God does not take too lightly to that. God is rather severe in his attitude towards that. That dishonors all of God's love and all the sacrifice and things that God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. And that kind of activity, that shipwrecks people's souls that God loves and cares about. So because of that, Paul characterizes here in verse 15 and 16, their condition currently and the future consequence coming upon them look at it there verse 15 paul says these people who are doing this forbidding people to hear about salvation and get saved those who do such paul says they do not please god and they're contrary and opposed to all men verse 16 he then says and those doing such things are filling up the measure of their sins but wrath paul says has come upon them to the uttermost another translation renders that same statement by doing these things they continue to pile up their sins but the anger of god has caught up with them at last look god is very patient extremely long-suffering i mean it, it shocks me sometimes i hope it does you It shocks me, the long-suffering and the patience of God with humanity and the things that we do towards Him and against Him and to one another. And though God is very patient with people, sin is never overlooked. God can't overlook sin. That would make Him unrighteous. That would make Him not good. That would make Him not a holy God. And there does come a point when continual sin of a person or a people group can reach a divine limit where God measuring things out spiritually and morally in his perfect justice, God measures it as having gone so far that there is no other proper recourse from a righteous standpoint than to bring about the wrath of God in a form of judgment to punish what has been done continuously. Now, when we read the term in the Bible, God's wrath, as mentioned there in verse 16, we need to understand God's wrath is not many times the way we envision wrath. In fact, the word that's used there and the, the way the Bible portrays God's wrath is not God just finally just reacting because at a certain point his blood just boils so much and that's a wrath, you know, the way we have wrath where you irritate me enough and then all of a sudden that's it. I just can't take it no more and I just freak out. And wrath, volcanic eruption. Look, we need to understand God's wrath biblically is the measured and controlled expression of God's righteous anger towards sin and wrongdoing, which he has patiently worked through and endured for a long time. And then God's wrath is his measured, controlled punishment and justice towards what is righteous and deserves to be punished. And those guilty of doing such were bringing the wrath of God upon themselves because God will indeed punish And God will indeed repay those who resist him and his purposes and also who harm his children as well. And I'm thankful for that because if somebody touched my kids, my wrath, and not like God's, wouldn't flow forth. So I would hope that as as God's children that his wrath would be towards those who would hurt and harm his children as well. Knowing that helps the people of God to process mistreatment when we are mistreated at times. Because of our faith in Christ, our relationship with the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35 says this God says, Vengeance is mine, and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. Hey, perhaps this morning, I don't know, maybe you're facing some resistance. Maybe you've been facing some opposition, even suffering and mistreatment that's directly connected to your faith in Christ or a decision you've made to honor God and do what's right. Can I say two things? First of all, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart and think that they're actually getting away with it. They're not. They're not. And secondly, I would say this. Don't step in and try and become God's judge. Don't allow yourself to become so overwhelmed and frustrated and disheartened that finally you just decide somebody's got to do something and step in and be God's judge. I would say instead, in faith, step back and let God deal with it justly in his way and in his time. He'll do a much better job, number one. And number two, he won't look guilty in the process. He'll do it righteously. And when he does it, you ain't going to argue about it because it was God that did it. It was God that intervened. So don't step in, step back, and let God deal justly with what transpires. Paul goes on, verse 17, to say, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, in presence, he says, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, verse 18, he says, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. So Paul, knowing, as we've talked about before, that there may be question as to why he did not return back to Thessalonica when he left town so quickly, he seeks to address the subject to bring clarification, remember as we said, Paul had a brief ministry there, not by preference but circumstance. He was pushed out of town in a matter of three Sabbaths, it says, so about a month's time or so. It seems he was pushed away from the city, driven out by persecution and resistance, and evidently, there arose those after Paul departed, who with a, a rather suspicious. Critical attitudes, speculating about Paul's activities by what they could observe, just what happened circumstantially, not knowing all the facts. There were those that arose saying, well, "What kind of Christians are these? And what kind of ministry is that? I mean, they come into town, guns ablazing, and doing all that they're doing, and so you know, committed and and excited to talk about God to you and help you, and then in a matter of a few weeks, they just abruptly depart." I mean do, do you really think that they actually care about you and you could see how from a suspicious critical vantage point Paul and his team because they were pushed out so quickly almost seemed maybe a little bit questionable on how those who were critical could arise and begin to say things like you know they must have just come into town for some notoriety and, and certainly they probably wanted to get a few bucks off of yet a few offerings they don't really care about you. I mean, do you, how could you think that Paul cares about you? I mean, that guy's a deserter. He abandoned you. In fact, that actually makes him, quite honestly, somewhat questionable in everything he said to you and everything he did. It's, it's worthy of question and speculation. Are, are you sure you really want to follow this Jesus? I mean, they seem somewhat questionable from what we can see of their lives circumstantially. So Paul reminds them here in our verses, notice verse 17, He reminds them that he didn't choose to depart. That wasn't the case. Paul says, let's clarify the facts here. He says, we were circumstantially driven away. Look what he says, verse 17. He says, we were taken away from you. He said, we didn't abandon you. We were taken away from you. That terminology that Paul uses there pictures a parent, hear me, a parent being ripped away from their own child, leaving the child orphaned now any parent that is ripped away from their own child you know these things happen in the times of you know when the jews were persecuted under nazi germany or times like this you know we're watching things happen today where people are being attacked through isis and these other groups where families are just being ripped apart and children are being stolen let me tell you this any parent that is violently ripped away from their child is heartbroken They're utterly heartbroken. So Paul says, look, you need to understand, this was not preference. This is heart-wrenching. We were ripped away from you, taken away from you. And he says here in our verses, this is only for a short time, he says, verse 17. So Paul had a faith and believed, I believe God's going to reunite us. I like someone with a heart like that. Paul says, look, we were ripped apart, but I believe God can put us back together. I believe God, this is a short time. I believe God is in the business of restoration. He's going to open a door for us to return. And He says as well in our verses there, we were only taken away in presence, verse 17, not in heart. So Paul's saying, look, though we're not physically able to be with you right now due to circumstances, our heart is still with you. And you know what that's like. Maybe sometimes something happens circumstantially and you're taken away from being in someone's presence but your heart is still fully engaged in their life and your heart is connected to them and what they're doing. And Paul says, this is where we're at in our hearts towards you. And he wanted them to know his desire. He says, verse 17 there, we endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. So Paul says, I have such a yearning, such a longing to come and to see you. And he says, verse 18, therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time. And again, so Paul says, look, not only do we yearn to see you, he says, we want you to know we've tried. We've tried many times to come and see you. He says, verse 18, we wanted to come to you time and again. So Paul wants them to understand that's what his desire is. But look as it goes on, verse 18, he says, but now that you know my desire, let me explain to you what the difficulty is. Here's what the difficulty is. We yearn to see you. We've tried to see you time and again. Verse 18, look at it. He says, but Satan is. Hindered us. But Satan hindered us. Here we see the source, take note, of spiritual resistance. The source of spiritual opposition as it unfolds in life circumstantially. Circle the word Satan. There's your answer Satan. Satan, or who we often call the devil in the Bible, is a fallen and corrupted angel who, in pride, at one point rebelled against God and against all God's ways. And as a result of that, came under divine judgment for those actions and now lives as a fallen, evil spiritual being operating in direct opposition to God, to God's will and God's ways and to God's people. And one day he, too, is going to be judicially cast into the lake of fire. But until that time, circumstantially, he in his jealousy of mankind and his rage against humanity wants to cause as much havoc and destruction as he can against people. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know, the devil, that's kind of a, a sad way to, to think of it, but it's almost the way when I was younger, I, I played soccer as I was growing up. And, and when I was, especially when I was younger, I was a really bad sport. And if, and if I, it's kind of one of these things. If I knew we were going to lose the game, let's say it's you know four nothing or four one, and there's about three minutes left on the clock, and you realize, okay, we're not going to score three goals and tie or come back and win. At that point, if I knew we were going to lose, my attitude shifted from can I score to who can I hurt. It just was. I just, if I'm not going to win, then I want to hurt somebody because I don't want you to enjoy winning. So if I'm losing. You're going to lose something, too. Maybe it'll be a limb, a leg, you know what? And, 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 and I honestly would find myself doing that on, on the field. And I want you to know Jesus has delivered me from that. I, thank goodness for healing and salvation. But, but that's kind of like the devil. The devil knows his destiny. He knows he's going to be cast into the lake of fire. But in the interim, what does he want to do? he wants to cause as much havoc and destruction and drag as many people into the pit of hell with him. And those who aren't going to the pit of hell, he wants to do everything he can to ruin your life as much as possible so that you don't enjoy the freedom and salvation you have in Christ or that you're not effective with other people. So he's always at work to oppose and resist God's people and to hinder, there's our term, to hinder us, to hinder followers of the Lord. Satan opposed Job and brought much difficulty in his life. In Luke 22, Jesus warned Peter that Satan wanted to sift him like wheat. Interpreted, he was saying, Peter, you need to be aware Satan wants to separate and pull you apart at the seams. That's what he wants to do with your life. He wants to sift you like the process with wheat to literally pull your life apart so he attacks and disrupts God's purposes and Satan wants to hold back Jesus' plans on this earth and to do what he can to hold back the people of God. So his attacks are often launched against the follower of Jesus or the ministry worker. Why? Because those are who the instruments of the Lord are on this planet at this point in time. And perhaps recently you can say, wow, you know, I, I've really been sensing or I can see how Satan has really been trying to hinder in my life in some way. And maybe you recognize, look, we must be aware. In fact, I even highlighted this in my notes. Now I know this is important. We must be aware. Satan wants to hold you back from God's best and from God's ideal in your life. And he will always be at work trying to do that. In every form and fashion and in crafty ways, he can cause hindrances in so many forms. Some of them are very obvious, Sometimes it's blatantly obvious, hey, this is Satan's trying to hinder in this situation. He's trying to hinder the best for my marriage or hinder me in my parenting with my children or hinder you know, my children's walk with the Lord or he's trying to hinder me from being effective to reach this person or do this particular thing. And sometimes it's very obvious and then other times it's very, very subtle. It's very subtle. And just something's going on and or it's an attitude or a heart change in a relationship or something circumstantial and we're just thinking, what is the deal? And what's, you know, what's going on? And the, rea- and the reality is that Satan's a master deceiver and he is running interference at a frequency that you're just not picking up. And the reality is, look, that's not a bad circumstance. That's Satan trying to hinder in a situation. That's Satan working in a spiritual way. Look, take notice if you would. Here's just one example With Paul's life, what was happening? He was being hindered from being able to help and minister to people for their benefit. Paul was being hindered from helping the Thessalonians spiritually. Interesting to note, take note of this. Satan sought, number one, to cause separation, drove him out of town, and then Satan worked to hinder reconciliation. He worked to cause separation relationally and then he worked to hinder reconciliation in relationship. Sound familiar? Anybody ever experienced something like that before? Satan here running interference wants us to be held back and we have to learn and realize the Bible teaches it is possible for Satan for a time to hinder God's work. It is possible, the Bible teaches, for Satan to prevent things. And we have to recognize that spiritual reality and be able to discern it. And it may very well be that's what's happening in your life right now. That that's what's transpiring. And once we recognize it's Satan running hindrance and interference, then we must do what we can through prayer and the Word of God, our spiritual weapons, and even just perseverance to defend against Satan's tactics. And I don't think, listen... I don't think Christians should act like they're on the offensive and you know, take Satan on. And I, I think that's foolish. That's like the person who mouths off and just gets knocked cold because they mouthed off with the wrong person. Look, I don't think we should go trying to attack Satan, but when Satan attacks defensively, I don't think as Christians too that we should bury our heads in the sand and not resort to the word of God and to prayer and to intercession and Christian perseverance and realize that we should be zealous in Christ's authority to overcome the hindrances of Satan and realize, look, this is Satan. The devil is trying to hinder here. And he's trying to cause... Inter- and I'm not going to just cower and, and just give up when he's running hindrances and interferences. I'm going to stand against that. I'm going to believe that the authority of Jesus can come into this situation and is greater and stronger. The Bible says in 1 John that Jesus came and was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2 says Jesus triumphed over him on the cross. So look, it's not my ability to triumph and overcome, but it is my knowing my savior and his power to say, look, he is working in opposition to what God wants. And therefore, I'm gonna trust God to give the ability to overcome. And let me just say this before we move on. Satan's hindrances are never 100% effective because God has unlimited ways to work. Case in point, what are we studying this morning? The letter of First Thessalonians satan hindered paul from getting back to the church at thessalonica and so what did god do god took satan's hindrance and he said that's okay i'm not limited and he inspires paul to write a letter which not only helped the church spiritually and gave them a lot of great theological truth but has helped hundreds and thousands of christians all the way to you and i this morning to be benefited spiritually because satan hindered and god said That's okay. I don't have a limited bag of opportunities that I can work through. God's hands are never tied, so the letter of 1 Thessalonians comes because God can work through other avenues and still bring about his good purposes. And that's a great encouragement when Satan is hindering to realize God can still work because his hands aren't tied and he's unlimited in his abilities to overcome even hindrances and work in other avenues when they transpire. Paul says, verse 19, for what is our hope? Our joy, our crown of rejoicing is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming for you he says are our glory and our joy so Paul wants them to know that what he found most rewarding amidst all this difficulty that he was enduring they were enduring was that he knew as followers of Christ those Thessalonians would now be present together with him at the coming of Jesus Christ. Paul says, as we think of Jesus' coming, he says, you are a part of our glory. He says, our joy and our crown of rejoicing. Sure, it's difficult, Paul says. We're suffering. Satan's hindering us from being together. But Paul knew one thing was certain for the future. And Paul says, one day we will be back together again. And the reason for that is because we're going to share together in the presence of Jesus Christ as he returns and comes for us. His coming was on the horizon and that coming involved drawing all Christians out of the world, what Paul is going to talk about in chapter 4 at what we call the rapture of the church, where all believers will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And Paul, knowing that they would be there and present at that reward ceremony, which was a part of the coming of Christ, found great hope And he found great joy in the ability to find assurance. He says to them, you're going to be a part of our crown of rejoicing. That word crown speaks of the victor's crown that was given to reward someone for how they ran their race. And what a wonderful thing to realize. The Bible speaks of how part of the coming of Jesus involves a time when we are also going to be rewarded for what we did as we ran our leg of the race as a Christian. And a part of that involves receiving eternal crowns which then are used in heavenly worship. And that's going to be a very rewarding, no pun intended, experience when you step into eternity. Imagine stepping into eternity, you went through things, difficulties, hardships, challenges, things that you endure as a Christian, even mistreatment and suffering, and being able to receive a crown and to realize that somebody would say something to you like, the reason why I'm here it's because I watched you. Or I listened to what you said that one time when you tried to talk to me. Or thank you for sharing the gospel. Or thank you for supporting that one missionary. And that 25 bucks a month that you could have spent on Starbucks or something else, that, that, that missionary you sponsored, they told me about Jesus. And to receive that as a crown to rejoice for all of eternity when what matters really matters and everything that doesn't, doesn't anymore. And Paul here, remembering that reality, said so we find such comfort in this to think of what it's going to be like in the presence of us coming to celebrate these things. Well, just like a parent who has love and concern for a child when they're not home and they're not with them, in the same way, Paul, deeply concerned because he can't get there to them, wanting to know how they're doing, he now begins to discuss that in chapter 3. He says there, verse 1 through 4, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, being separate from you. When we, at that point, thought it good to be left in Athens alone, we sent Timothy, our brother, and a minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to encourage you concerning your faith. That no one should be shaken by these afflictions for you yourselves know, Paul says, that we were appointed to suffering, to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened in You know. So, Paul, here we can see, has a heart. He wants to follow up spiritually with this group of believers that he shared the gospel with and the church he had planted there initially. And he wants, it seems, to continue to assist and to invest in their ongoing maturity. But yet, circumstantially, he's being hindered from doing that. And Paul says, I came to a point, we came to a point where our inability to get back to you and to check in on how you were doing spiritually and to help you further, it brought Paul to a place, we could say, of, in a sense, an adjustment of his approach. Because Paul says, when we could no longer take it, not knowing how you're doing or being able to help, we decided to just stay in Athens. We accepted maybe we're not the ones that are supposed to come. Maybe God's got a different plan. And instead he says, we sent Timothy on our behalf to do what we were being hindered to do. Now, Timothy, we know scripturally, was Paul's protege. He was someone who Paul mentored. And oftentimes we see Timothy in the Bible being sent forth as an extension of Paul to go and do what Paul wanted to do, but at times he was limited and unable to do. So, He calls him here a brother. He refers to him as a minister of God, which is a word that speaks of being a servant. And he calls him there a fellow laborer, verse 2. A fellow laborer means he labored in partnership with the Lord and a fellow laborer that he partnered with other people. And I think what a beautiful picture here, how they functioned as a team, Paul and Silas and Timothy. When Paul wasn't able, he could send someone else under the direction and and others could experience the same things because there was more than one who was able to do the same thing and and Paul sent Timothy and why did he send him? We see verse 2 he sent him to further strengthen them spiritually he says I sent Timothy to establish you the idea is to help you get rooted to help you get grounded in the faith and to further encourage you concerning your faith in other words to spur you on and Christians need that sometimes hey hey keep going, keep walking with the Lord, keep serving Jesus. And he wanted to make sure as well, we see verse 3 and 4, that they weren't swayed or knocked off track by their suffering. Paul says we didn't know if if people had been shaken by these afflictions. The idea there is to be moved back and forth or knocked off course. And, And what Paul realized is he didn't want them to see them become unstable because of hardships that sometimes, let's just be very honest, sometimes hardships and mistreatment and tragedy and things we go through that can really shake a person even a christian perhaps you can relate that this morning maybe something difficult or painful has happened to you or hurtful and and, and the truth of the matter is it's really shaking you it's really shaking your faith maybe even and sometimes these things they shake us and they rattle us and leave us confused and disheartened and discouraged and, and, and that's a part of what we experience and Paul didn't want this to have a long term detrimental effect because he knows that the devil uses that to make people vulnerable and he wants them to realize as he experienced and as they're now experiencing as well that suffering is in some ways even appointed in the Christian life Paul says we told you when we were with you before And he says, verse 3 there, that we're appointed to these things, appointed to suffering. Part of the Christian life involves, at times, appointments with suffering. Jesus said, in this world, you will suffer tribulation. 1 Peter 2 says, don't think it's strange when you suffer for Christ. And again, as we said earlier, it's important to know this lest we get confused and misinterpret such occasions. Because if a Christian If I go through difficulties and I start to think something's wrong, I mean, shouldn't life always just be easy and and, and opposition free if we know that it's part of the Christian walk to still deal with trials and tragedies and mistreatment even because we're a Christian, then we won't be as easily shaken when it happens. It will allow us to have a stability in our relationship with Christ where we can remain stable amidst the storm and keep anchored spiritually. Because the storm's going to come. But knowing that storms are scheduled to come helps us to stay anchored. Like James 1, it helps us to endure trials knowing that the testing of our faith is producing perseverance in us spiritually and maturing us as a Christian. It helps us, like 1 Peter 1 says, to know that trials strengthen our faith and purify us. Or like Romans 5 says, those trials produce character in us and help us to deepen. And when you know resistance and mistreatment is actually not just vain, but it's helping you, it's shaping you and maturing you, then it seems not only are we not not just shaken by it or become unstable, but you can almost in a strange way sort of submit to it. And say, Lord, you're the potter and I'm the clay. And if this is what it takes to mature me or help me or strengthen me right now, then, Lord, I'll submit under this. And you can use it in my life. And somehow it helps to not be shaken, but yet to continue on to know that. Paul says, verse 5, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith lest by some means the tempter, referring to the devil, had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Again, Paul is genuinely concerned for their spiritual welfare and knew that Satan is crafty and that he is cruel in his intentions to sabotage the work of God within people. He was concerned that Satan might have succeeded in disrupting their faith, in causing them to stumble. And Satan will always work, no, in direct Attempt to destroy your faith. To destroy your faith. Because the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. And because of that, unbelief becomes the thief that robs the human soul of the best intentions that God has for us. Interesting, Paul here calls the devil the tempter. We see many names for the devil in the Bible. Jesus in John 8 calls him a murderer, a liar. He says in John 10 that he comes like a thief to rob and kill and destroy. Peter calls him a roaring lion and now Paul here calls the devil the tempter. The tempter. You know, a tempter is someone who entices or lures people, seduces and attracts them towards something and one of the primary efforts of the devil in your life and in this world is to do that very thing, to tempt you towards doing what's wrong and sinful. In a sense, you can say he's like sin's master salesman. He is probably the most persuasive promoter of making wrong decisions and bad choices. And he places before us opportunities to pursue what's ultimately going to destroy us because he wants to shipwreck your faith. And he wants to sabotage and sever your relationship with God and sever your relationship with others and subtly convince you to do things that will just ruin your life. The primary MO of the devil is to work as a tempter. He tried it in the Garden of Eden... He even tried it with Jesus himself and his humanity when he was there in the wilderness. So we have to be on guard as Christians so we don't fall prey to the tempter because he will bring temptation into your life. To behave immorally, 1 Corinthians 7 is a passage that speaks to married couples that they should have regular sexual relations and the Bible says, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Satan will tempt us to do immoral things in our behavior. And Satan also won't just tempt you in relation to behavior, he also will tempt you at times to think and behave wrongly and to think and process things in a wrong way in what you believe about God or even spiritual life or truth or how you relate to people, he'll tempt you to think wrongly. He'll tempt your mind. He'll tempt your feelings. Satan will exploit vulnerabilities. And oftentimes, when we're dealing with a trial and suffering like these people were, that's when Satan turns up the heat. Because he likes to take a trial that God permits and turn a trial into a temptation for you to walk in the flesh. Because he will exploit weakness and pressure. And in that weakened state, Satan doesn't ever look and say, Ah, what? I mean, Jay looks like he's having a bad day. I mean, maybe we should give him a break. We'll come back and bug him next week. No, the devil's an opportunist. The devil says, look, he looks weak. Perfect opportunity. Perfect opportunity to tempt him and get him to walk in the flesh. Perfect opportunity to capitalize on that weakness. So we must be on guard against the tempter in our lives First Corinthians 10 13 says that God helps us to overcome all temptations Paul concludes verse 6 through 8 saying but now that Timothy's come to us he says bringing us a good news of your faith and love that they were doing well spiritually and that you have a good remembrance of us Paul says that you do want to you know, see us you still respect us even as we want to see you therefore he says in all of our affliction and distress we're comforted concerning you by your faith for now we live verse eight if you stand fast in the lord notice what paul says he indicates that he is happy and blessed because this good report comes back from timothy who he had sent there that they're doing well spiritually they still love paul they want to see him just as he does them it says paul says in light of that in all of our afflictions Though we're still going through difficult things and distressful things, Paul found the ability to endure and keep going in his own hardship. How? Take note of it by focusing on others. Paul says we find the ability to keep going amidst our own struggles by thinking about you and being concerned about you. Paul did not allow himself to get self-consumed with his own struggles. Instead, he focused on serving other people in the midst of his own struggles and making sure they were doing okay. And it sort of didn't let him overly focus on himself. His focus on other people, even when he was distressed and he was struggling, his focus on others intentionally, it almost was, listen, like a blessed distraction. It kept him from being overly consumed and becoming distraught and discouraged and disheartened in his own life. And can I say, that's a rather healthy perspective to employ when you go through a hard time. When you go through a hard time, look, today if you're suffering and you're going through a hard time, perhaps one of the most comforting things could be help somebody else. Comfort somebody else. Care for somebody else and watch how God uses that therapeutically. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray together.